health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Before we start today's show, I want to give a shout out to our partners for this podcast, Vitality. They are an essential part of me being able to facilitate these conversations. I've been an ambassador now with Vitality for several years and always the one thing that stands out most for me is just how much they care about people's health and are so keen to enhance their experience of life whatever way they can. They understand as much as I do, I think it's never about quick fixes or the one pill fixes everything. It's about the small, healthy, proactive behaviours sustained through a lifetime that can lead to incredible differences. Not only does Vitality protect members with award-winning cover, but they also offer discounts on gym membership, trainers, activity trackers and healthy food too so you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply. Before I go, I want to say a final thank you to the sponsors of today's podcast, Vitality. For me, the secret to a happy and healthy life is about living consciously. And when we can align those little things we do and decisions we make every day with the life we really want to live, it really makes a difference which is when the team over at Vitality comes in. Their comprehensive cover enables us all to live a happier, healthier life, whether it's through offering discounts on gym memberships at Virgin Active, Nuffield Health or Pure Gym, or on activity trackers from Garmin, Polar and Samsung. For me, I've been an ambassador with Vitality for several years now, and undoubtedly the feeling of true support when someone cares about you and your health and your quality of life, it makes a massive difference so you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson, and welcome to this episode of I Am. This week's podcast interview is about exploring the connection between who we are and food. Carolyn Steele, my guest, is an incredibly interesting woman. Her passion involves looking at life through the lens of food. And for the sake of this conversation, she's more than happy to take a bit of a run at human potential too. And what a job she does, may I add. How food shapes us and our worlds is her speciality. So for the last 20 plus years, she's been following that unfolding path wherever it leads. If you want to hear more, then do head over to the Tuesday episode just before this one. These Thursday episodes are just for the guests though. I feel they have so much to offer, so much possibility and opportunity in what they're talking about, what they've been through, and it's a great chat. So I don't want to waste any more time on me. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. Welcome to I Am. Carolyn, thanks 
ever so much for joining us. It's going to be a real pleasure. I'm very, very excited to discuss so many things with you and get your take uh, on what is, for me, a fascinating subject. So thanks and welcome to the podcast. Well, great pleasure. Thank you so much. The podcast called I Am, and it's really looking into human potential and what this holds for the world around us, for ourselves, for our relationships, our performance and, and our health and well-being. And I guess a lot of that relationship idea of how we relate to our bodies, how we relate to our environment, how we relate to the world around us. And all these kind of questions are so, so interesting to me and, and so worthwhile. I know you have a, a fascinating background on this. I'd love to hear from you just a little bit about you know, what your speciality is for those that are listening and, and how you came to it and uh, what it means to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, very thrilling to be here. And um, now, I mean, I think the short answer to your question is that, I mean, explicitly, I, I sort of seem to have ended up as a person who looks at the world through the lens of food. I mean, in essence, I wanted from a very young age to be an architect. And I've never really been able to work out why, uh, because there's nothing like it in my family or anything. But I did end up studying architecture and actually practicing it and teaching it. And I remember from very early on in that process thinking, well, kind of this is all very well, but it's not really what I thought architecture was, you know, and then I had to start saying, well, okay, well, what did I think architecture was? And again, the short answer to that question, I guess, is that, you know, architecture for me, I mean, I am interested in buildings, but only in as much as they affect how we live and how we feel. So only in as much as they structure, if you like, human possibility. And of course, non-human possibility, it's important also to say, yeah. although I wouldn't have put it like that 20 years ago. So I guess that then began this quest for me of how can I really inject real life into the architectural discourse, you know, because... I mean, cities, I'm, I'm a Londoner, I was born and bred in London. And, you know, I, I always used to think, well, the way architects talk about cities is not how I feel about London. You know, I feel very emotional about London. And it's about where my friends live and where we go out and where we meet and just what it's like to live in London. So it was a long journey, as I say, and I'll, I'll spare you the gory details. But in essence, I was searching for how to inject life, as I say, into the architectural discourse. And I had the light bulb moment of using food. So food had been something, I mean, I think, you know, plenty of us can sign up to being interested in food one way or another. But, you know, it was something that I had been particularly interested in. And I had read about, you know, I'd read food histories, for example. And so it was a theme, another theme running through my life. In fact, when I started teaching architecture, which I did very, very soon after graduating, actually, I would give my students food related projects, because I found if I did that, it made it much easier for them to sort of imaginatively inhabit their designs. You know, if I sort of gave them a market to design, they could sort of start using all their senses to imagine the spaces they were designing. So food had been there in the background, as it were. But during a conversation, as I say, I'm cutting out fast chunks of this very, very long story, but it was during a conversation with a colleague at the London School of Economics where I was teaching on the Cities programme in the year 2000, that I had the idea of describing a city through the lens of food. And honestly, you know, I'm one of those people who has had a light bulb moment in their lives. You know, it's before and after that moment, because I remember, okay. you know, my hair stood up on end. It was like, oh, my God, this is my thing. And that was in April 2000. So that was the moment. I thought, this, this is what I've been looking for. And I've never looked back. So the last, I'm going to give my age away now, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> the last 22 years of my life have been devoted to pursuing this idea of, first of all, how you describe a city through food, which very quickly became the question of how do you feed a city? And then basically the discovery that, oh, wow, food actually shapes our lives in every possible conceivable way. You know, we are made of food. Every atom in your body by the age of about 25 consists of meals you've eaten. You don't have any of your original atoms left. So we're made of food, our minds are affected by it, our emotions, you know, our habits, our cities, our landscapes, our climate, our politics, our economics, you know, everything is shaped by food. So it's this incredibly powerful lens. And now I guess I've just become, as I say, very bizarrely, the woman who sort of sees the world through the lens of food. And it's just a remarkable and incredibly powerful way of seeing the world. And I should add, asking all the really big questions, which is for me, maybe the most exciting part of all. I, I think that concept of questioning is, is so, so big, because without it, the cycle continues unconsciously. And with that cycle continuing, it just gets smaller and smaller the ability to step out of that cycle must come with some kind of curiosity, desire to know. And the other point you mentioned there about that eating and, and food being a full obligatory requirement of our lives. It's something you can't step outside. Therefore, everyone has a relationship with food. And, and I think the reason it excites me so much is that when seen the way that you are, it's limitless. And yet with that unconscious cycle, it's become so limited. And yet it is actually a subject of which there is no end because you mentioned about our whole bodies being made of just the food we've eaten and the body and the brain and the way the brain works and, and how every sense is picking up the universe. Your entire experience is so hugely affected by it that all these things are pathways to enormous experiential transformations. And I think that's why... For me, I'm in. I'd love to to sort of get your take on that relationship with food and, and where's it been? Where's it going? Where are we now? How do you see that mm. bigger picture now? I'm asking you questions which um, would normally take half your day. <laughs> I was going to say they've taken about 20 years so far and I it's ongoing. But um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I love what you say. And I think, you know, for me, one of the great revelations has been to understand that food is life. You know, it's it's a metaphor for life. And I often say this in audiences now, just to make people actually think about what this is. Food consists of living things that we either nurture or just hunt, but then kill so that we can live. So food is life. You know, it ties us into the earthly cycle of life and death. And, you know, that's there with every spoonful of soup that you eat or every bowl of cereal or whatever it is. And that's such a powerful idea. And I think... I mean, I, I thought it's really interesting what you said about to question is so important, but actually it can become overwhelming because there's so much that we don't know. And I'm going to sort of use another analogy, which always amuses me, because I think food is an, an ideal vehicle for thinking. And the reason I think that is because, you know, we all know what it is to eat, as you say, you know, we all sit down in the morning with our plate of eggs or our bowl of cereal or whatever it is that we eat. Obviously, fruit and vegetables are also available. And we almost eat unconsciously because it's what we do. 
And I often say food is too big to see because literally we would not be here without it. So we know what food is in a sort of subconscious way. But then if you take that bowl of soup or whatever it is and say the whole world is in this bowl of soup, which it is. Let's say you're eating a bowl of leek and potato soup. Okay, where did those leeks come from? Where did those potatoes come from? They might have come from across the world. Where were they grown? Were they grown in healthy living soil or were they grown in a greenhouse on chemicals? Who grew them? Were they paid enough to grow them? How were those, you know, fruit and vegetables? When were they harvested? You know, was it a good year or a bad year? Were they sort of transported in a chilled chain, which uses a huge amount of energy? You know, if you're eating apples or something, were they gassed so that they didn't kind of ripen until they'd come across the world? And then, you know, where were they bought and sold? Did they end up in a supermarket? Did they end up in a market? Did, did humans actually interact in the business of buying and selling them? Who cooked them? You know, what implements did they use? You know, where did that knife come from that you used to cut that leek up? You know, who made that? Who invented it? And it just goes on and on and on. And in the end, you just think, OK, in this bowl of soup is the universe. But also I know this bowl of soup or this bowl of cereal because I eat it every day. So it puts you in this ideal place between sort of conscious knowing and unconscious knowing, if you like, which for me is the perfect place to be for doing the really, really important stuff, the really important thinking, because you need to be able to move in and out of that space. It's almost like meditation in a way. You know, to paraphrase Don Rumsfeld, there are the sort of the, the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. It's almost like sort of moving between the stuff you know you know, the stuff you know you don't know, and the stuff you don't know you don't know. And and, and food can do that. And it affects everything. It's not just metaphorical and, and philosophical, although, of course, it is because it has ultimate value because it is life. But it also has intense practicality. It shapes spaces. It shapes economies. As I say, it shapes our lives in so many fundamental ways. So this is a very, very powerful, as I say, tool or, or medium to, to exist in. And we all, we all eat. So we all have it available to us. I've got so many things I want to explore about that. It'd be, it's so powerful because this podcast and looking at and speaking to other guests from, from other topics and, and other angles, the journey of realizing that potential in the I am is one of moving from the compulsive and unconscious or conditioned into the conscious and the unconditioned mm. so essentially moving as you're talking about from the known back into the unknown the the, the realized into the unrealized and i think mm. that opportunity it's, I've, I've not heard it ever articulated in such a powerful way because the message is that every moment contains a full opportunity to relate to the universe and you've given yeah. us that opportunity through a simple whatever it is you're engaging with and in this case food which has the ability to relate to it on a full conscious level is the secret in so many ways to health i mean i know we talk about in terms of eating a lot of people worry so much about what to eat but less is spoken about how to eat in yeah. terms of the appreciation the gratitude for that incredible interconnected web that comes with a simple bowl of soup of mm. so many efforts and living things and interactions. And I think you mentioned it about just even talking about that connection to the food we eat, but that brings us to the soil 
we become soil and we will be food yeah. for something else at some point. Yes. And, and this, I think, is the one of the issues at hand is that with that cycle and unquestioned about the, the I am is that we become so separate and almost so superior that the way that we treat the planet and other food becomes almost like you're here to serve me. And we become so detached and mm. dissociated from what was probably in the in the ancient times, such a regular thing to to be fully involved in the hunting of the food or the or the mm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the harvesting and the preparation and what yeah. have you. But you know, what's the relationship with our food now? People and food. What what is it mostly looking like? Uh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I, it's funny that you should mention hunter gatherers because I'm sort of obsessed with them at the moment. It's kind of mostly what I'm reading about, actually. And the reason for that is that I think, as you say, you know, sort of to be a hunter gatherer is to dwell absolutely in the world directly. Every experience you have is a primary experience. You know, it's not secondhand. It's not something you heard somebody else did. It's you doing it. And I think, you know, given the length of time that humans have been on the planet and given the length of time we've been farming, which is basically one minute to midnight we started farming sort of thing, we are still basically hunter-gatherers. So I think a lot of our desires, I think a lot of our sort of needs come from primary experience. And you see it. I mean, you must have seen it in your sporting life. You know, people get on a field, start running around, and suddenly they become what they were meant to be. You know, we're built to move. And this world that we've created for ourselves, where we don't really do anything practical anymore. I mean, how many of us can put our hands up and say we can we could fashion a chair out of a tr- tree trunk sort of adequately or, yeah. you know, kind of um, get a porcupine out of a hole without injuring ourselves, whatever it is. Most of us can't do practical stuff, you know, because we've invented this whole society where everything gets done for you. You know, we've outsourced the business of living effectively. And I think this does us incredible damage. And lockdown has been fascinating in this respect, actually. It's been very divisive, of course, and people who had to go out working every day on the front line suffered enormously. But I think, you know, that those of us who were able to work from home or forced to work from home really had a light shone on what we need in order to thrive. And and I think two things just came out of that incredibly powerfully for me. One was that those people who did not have access to nature really suffered. And we talked about garden apartheid, you know, I mean, if you've yeah. got a garden at a nice house and you're working from home, actually, everyone pretty much loved it. It's like, why would I go back to the nine to five rat race? And the other thing is our need for other people, our need for social contact. Only now we're discovering how desperately people suffered, you know, by not being able to give somebody else a hug or something. Now, think about what those two things are. Hugging someone and smelling the the green grass of spring, whatever it is. They're so fundamental and they're so basic. And I think we realised, we learnt through that process that actually what we need in life, what makes us happy is really, really straightforward, physical. I, I would say physical predominantly, primary experience, and all the other fancy stuff gets built on top of that. And this, for me, is a major insight because I think this is achievable. We can provide this for people. What people need is a nice place to live where they have access to nature. They need meaningful stuff to do. I know it's a cliche that people started baking their own sourdough and all the rest of it, you know, but actually yeah. it's not a cliche. Actually, people thought, wow, 
I've got time. I have to eat every day. Why don't I make that meaningful? Why don't I make that enjoyable? And there's a real sort of seed in there of what makes a good life, what makes us happy is actually making stuff, not just being consumers. And the other thing is, as I say, society, which very ironically, capitalism kind of attacks at every level because capitalism wants you to behave like a so-called homo economicus, you know, a well-informed consumer who just sits at home dialing up the latest gadget or meal that you want to eat and it just arrives as if by magic on a magic carpet. This is not being human. To be a consumer is not to be a human being. So I think there's so many things that came out of lockdown for me in terms of, oh, You know, actually, when you take all the razzmatazz away, the stuff that we really need to make us thrive is A, very simple and B, very achievable. But we just haven't designed our economy or our society to deliver it. Looking at that, I'm just thinking about the hunter-gatherer side of it. It's very interesting you say how quickly that our world, especially technologically, is evolving, Mm. that it's almost, it's leaving us behind and, and we're almost making a leap we're not we're not ready for you like you said we're, we're one minute to midnight in terms of farming so we're still in that hunter-gatherer mode and it's interesting when when you have that single purpose maybe in a day that you go out and you you have to hunt you have your job to do and you, whatever it is it's 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 a bit like when you're when you're hungry when you're hungry, you might be a little bit of a pain in the backside, but you you <laughs> you're you very know motivated. what you want. You motivated, <laughs> and you go and do it. And and I think the issue being is that people, when they know what they need, they're on a single path, be it sort of mentally with everything working in the same direction of just how do I get what I do, how and how do I use my skills to do that. It, it, there is some order there that that keeps everyone, like you said, in their primary experience. But absolutely. But at the same time, now that people's stomachs are a full, I'm not saying talking about everyone in this respect. Yeah, mm, obviously there's mm. so much struggle still out there in so many ways. But for people in, in this country and in a lot of the developed countries, you know, the luxury is is so available and at hand. And it's then a lot of the, the talk is about where's my purpose? And without purpose, yeah. they, we seem to create many, many problems. I wonder if when you say about the lockdown, the idea about growing your own vegetables a little bit and, and taking a walk in nature, if, if there's an intelligence there which you connect to naturally by growing your own vegetables be it the the need to go and look after them and as you look after them there's a an innate kind of understanding occurs that this is part of who I am this is going to be part of who I am I'm going to eat this so I want to look after it yeah 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 I mean I I don't have kids and I don't have pets but I do have plants (laughs) right yeah I mean, it's incredible. I I mean, I live in the middle of London, so it's kind of bonkers that I, I grow vegetables, but actually I have this little roof on the way up to my flat here. And for the last five years or so, you know, I got access to the roof and I've been growing enormous Danish pickling cucumbers that can grow up to two kilos each, tomatoes, figs, lots of different herbs and stuff. And it's kind of insane because I, I just, for me, the miracle that you can get this seed and you can kind of stick it in a bit of earth and water it and watch it. <laughs> you know, after about two weeks, this little shoot comes up and it's just, it's just blows my mind. You know, I mean, actually 
this is nature doing what nature does. You know, plants know how to grow. As Elliot Coleman, you know, the father of organic farming in the USA once famously said, plants want to grow. You know, your job as a farmer is just to kind of get out of the way and give them conditions in which they can do it. And then, yes, this sense of responsibility. I mean, John, this is going to sound so ridiculous. I don't know whether you remember that last winter there were some really appalling hailstorms. And I felt terrible because I didn't realise this was coming. And my little cucumber plants were only about three inches high. And the hail came and I didn't get there in time. And and two of them were kind of bent over and I sort of nurtured them back to health. And then I built little cloches for them to sort of keep them safe, you know. And I just thought, this is very emotional for me. And actually one yeah. of them died, but two survived, you know. And, and the two that survived... One of them grew, it was the biggest cucumber plant I've ever grown. It was an absolute hairy monster. You know, I just thought, that's just incredible. The will to survive, the knowledge that nature has to grow. And it totally changes you as a person, actually, growing food. You have to live according to the agricultural seasons, even on a roof in London, because you have to decide what you're going to grow. You have to sort of prepare the ground. You have to be there. If you go away for a couple of days, the neighbours have to come in and water for you and all of that. And it's a fundamental connection. And honestly, when I pickle these cucumbers and then feed them to my friends, I mean, I've got you know about 30 friends now slightly addicted to Danish pickling cucumbers in London because you can't get them in the shops. You know, very delicious. And, you know, when you serve somebody food that you've grown and nurtured yourself and then pickled and gone through all of those processes, there is no greater sense of achievement or joy or, you know, because feeding people is loving. You know, of course, it's a way of showing love, as we know. And... There's just such a profound sense of meaning and and purposefulness and why am I here-ness, you know. And I think by outsourcing, as I say, all the things that it takes to keep us going to other people and not really thinking about it and treating them as if they're, oh, you know, cheap and, oh, yeah, whatever, oh, the food just comes, we miss out on the greatest source of joy in life, which is to actually engage with, with life itself directly. You know, that's what I mean by primary experience, to actually encounter directly what it means to survive in a sense and of course I'm I'm not in survival mode I'm growing cucumbers on my roof and getting most of my food like everybody else from the shops but actually when it does become a question of survival that becomes even more interesting because as we know in a crisis and again we saw this under lockdown people become their best selves. People go the extra mile. And the extraordinary stories that we heard of people looking after their neighbours and setting up WhatsApp groups on streets and saying, if anybody needs anything, I'm here. And Captain Tom doing his kind of walks around the garden. It, It brings out the best in us. Why is that? Because we need to encounter the world directly in order to find out who we actually are. You know, we need a bit of, if you like, that kind of friction and struggle to find out who we really are. And that's when we find out, you know, what it means to be human and we can build on that. Something you've said there just about the seed knows how to grow and the seed contains all the possibility. It is not the farmer's job to determine what should come out of the seed, but simply to provide the conditions. And I think when you mention about that engagement with life, I think it's it's crossing that line where we seem to have the expectation and the assumption or have made a conclusion already about what this should be, a relationship between myself and someone else on the street. Yeah. You know, we've already got our ideas around what respect is, what politeness is, what etiquette is, 
and who should say mm-hmm. what and, and what's a nice person, what's a not nice person and all these things where in fact, actually that relationship is the unbound possibility. It's a seed that if you feed with the right conditions and then the direct relationship is the unknown of what it will be, but you're so in amongst it that you're also, you're kind of creating it whilst supplying it. Absolutely. And I think all everything you're saying about those relationships with other people, the relationships with the planet and what's in the way seems to be that sense of taking things for granted, but also that understanding of expectation now mm. that we've become distanced from that growing, that it's just, we live sort of according to that. This is how it should be. And if it's a bit less, we get angry. If it's a bit more, we have a little bit of a kind of gentle surprise. And we talk about our day in that sort of like good day, average day, better day, terrible day. But actually what you're talking about, that direct engagement, there's no good day, bad day. It's just life. It is no, just- yeah. It's all a journey. It's all a journey. I think that's a very important thing to say. I mean, you mentioned soil earlier. And by the way, I mean, soil is the other thing I'm reading about constantly at the moment because it's just so fascinating. And we're discovering so much now about what soil really is, you know, and we've only been able to do this over the last decade, really, a bit like they just sent James Webb up into space to look at the origins of the universe. Same thing's happening at the micro scale. You know, for the first time, we're really able to study soil and see what's going on in there. And it's mind blowing. And it's so yeah. it's a little universe in in there under your feet in your garden and as you rightly say the, the seed knows what to do but if the soil doesn't support the seed that's not going to happen so i often say that soil is the best metaphor for society the humans are the seeds but what we need to be building is good soil and of course we need to build actual good soil because you know human health is based on plant health and plant health is based on soil health. And I can go into some detail on this, as I say, because I, I just read yet another amazing book by David Montgomery and Anne Bickley, who are sort of actually superstars of the sort of the microbiome and its relationship with the soil and how the, our microbiome and the plant's rhizosphere are basically analogous. You know, they're doing the same set of things. It's, it's attracting the right microbes and giving them the right conditions in which they can just busy away kind of doing all their wonderful work, sort of feeding us essentially. But, you know, I think in terms of society as well, when you plant a garden, you don't sort of say, well, I want that tree to be, you know, three foot six high and I want its leaves to turn brown on the 5th of November. You know, you just don't do that. You have a vague idea of what you might like, but then you chuck the seeds in the ground, or it's not chuck, you very carefully plant them and water them and nurture them. And then they do their thing. And it's your job to look after, as Elliot Coleman said, you provide the conditions in which they can thrive. And you feed the soil with delicious, well-rotted horse manure, if you can get hold of some, and you water and you nurture and you prune. And, And that's what we need to be doing for humans too. You know, because we all have incredible potential, but it's not obvious what it is necessarily even to us when we're younger. I mean, I told you earlier about my light bulb moment. I mean, it came when I was 40. But, you know, when I look back on it now, it was like, well, I was moving towards that place for the previous, you know, at least 35 years consciously. But I just, I didn't know that was going to be the moment burst into bloom, shall we say. You know, so I think it's really tragic that we don't give people the space. And I mean, the other thing I was going to say about the good life, and I think what lockdown taught us is that so many people, and again, 
I know this is sort of not everybody had the opportunity to do this, but people lucky enough to be able to have the time and the space and the sort of the peace at home to do it, took up the musical instrument they'd always meant to learn as a kid. They started learning a new language. You know, as I say, they started cooking and really got seriously into it. And all that sort of flourishing happened because they weren't you know hammering back and forth to some city job to get rich to earn money to have a good life because they were rich you know and we really need to take this lesson away I think you know we need to see how can we create society more like a garden and not everybody has to be an oak tree you know it's absolutely fine to be a daisy as well you can be anything you like but create those conditions that in which people can discover for themselves who and what they want to be. And then we support them in becoming that because that is the key, solving the problem of everybody being so frustrated. You know, I think, I think again, what capitalism does is it sort of, as you say, it gives you all these false measures of whether you're a success or not. Yeah. Have you reached this stage by the time you're 25? Have you bought a house? How are you earning this? Have you got a wife and kids yet? And if not, why? It's just such rubbish. And it's not what makes us happy either. And, you know, Aristotle famously said, you know, I mean, basically, what what is politics? Politics is the art of creating a society in which everyone can flourish. I couldn't put it better. But as I say, I think the analogy of the garden, go out into a garden and look, you know, no plant looks the same as another plant. You know, you can tell an oak is an oak and you can tell it looks a bit like another oak. They're a family. And by the way, they're talking under the ground that we now know through mycorrhizal connections. But... They all look different because they've all grown into what they, in in their particular conditions, needed to become. So, you know, I think that, for me, is, as I say, the best analogy I can think of of the kind of society we should be trying to create. That's amazing. I think uh, you mentioned there just about going into your garden and having a look, and there's no plant or flower in there that looks disappointed because it's not the same as or as big as the one next to it (laughs) exactly every single plant or whatever it is is simply being all it can be and it doesn't have an idea of all it can be it's just exploring and allowing the journey of what i'm meant to be if i open to it then i'll move towards it if i close to it i'll just be what i think i should be at best and i think you mentioned the capitalist sort of idea and, and therefore it sets in motion the competition, the comparison, people having an idea of themselves and then trying to confirm that idea by proving it to everyone. And it's a movement away from being into doing. Yeah. Everything's about Absolutely. doing. Everything's doing. I've got to do this. And then people talk about stress and being tired, you call it, but we've lost contact with that being. And I think that's where the danger is, is that all this doing, we start to try and, believe the secret to the next stage of food health and the planet is through our doing instead of us returning to our being by returning to our being the solution is there but if we continue on the path of doing thinking we're going to make a better planet than than Mm. is already here through the natural intelligence and i i look at what does the future look like what would be a healthy way of re-establishing a more harmonious existence and relationship between you know, human and the food source and the planet itself and the planet and thriving of the planet because you mentioned about that competition i think it's amazing you look at you have a, the bees and you have elephants now an elephant is a lot bigger than a bee an elephant has an amazing <laughs> kind of interaction with its environment but you see now that when the bees are in danger people are panicking like mad because they don't understand that the smallest thing also has an equal impact and i, I wonder how do we get back to that harmonious abundance 
yeah, that comes from being versus where does it go if we don't? You know, what what are we looking at if we if we don't? Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are two sort of strands in the way I'd want to answer that question. And one, if you like, is what we practically do. And the other is what we sort of, as it were, need to philosophically do. And I'll start with a philosophical bit because it's, it's the more interesting bit because it's what drives everything else. So this question of what is a good life, what makes us happy... And it's very interesting that in the West, we tend to look to the East for this revelation, you know, and basically Buddhism or something, you know, sort of these religions that seem to have understood that happiness is just learning, as you say, to be, to just to exist and realise that's good. But we actually have a, a Western kind of um, Buddhist among us. And I, I, I call him that Epicurus. He's one of the most misunderstood philosophers in history, because you think of Epicureanism as fine dining and all of this, but it really, really is not. If you read Epicurus, and one of the brilliant things is most of his work's been destroyed. Apparently, he wrote about 50 books, but only about half a page exists. Okay. So you actually can read all of Epicurus, which for someone like me, he's a very slow reader, is quite nice. Anyway, so I do know what Epicurus said. And he basically said, and I think this is so amazing, that... Our bodies are hedonistic. We're built for pleasure, you know, because as you said earlier, if you're hungry, you're extremely motivated. And actually, the hungrier you get, the more pleasure you get when you eat. I mean, this is something that we, again, deny ourselves in the capitalist world because, you know, the whole idea is, oh, let's eat before we're hungry. Well, actually, if you eat before you're hungry, you don't get the pleasure. You know, you actually need to be properly hungry, as Brian Savarin, the philosopher of the kitchen, noted in, in the 18th century and all the rest of it. So what Epicurus said is that the satisfaction of hunger or thirst or any other bodily need is as good as life gets. You know, that moment when you go, oh, you know, when you have your first you <laughs> yeah. know, ice cold drink after running around yeah. on a hot day or something, that's as good as it gets. The more I think about it, the more I think, actually, I can't argue with that because that actually maps onto my own experience. And therefore, what he really says is take care of the, uh, the necessary stuff and enjoy it. That is Epicurus's wisdom. Now, what's fascinating about this is that two of Epicurus's teachers actually travel to India pre the Buddha just about, but I mean, they're already thinking along these kinds of lines. So this idea that to, to exist well in a simple way is actually the key to a good life actually has these deep roots both in Eastern and Western philosophy. It's just in Western philosophy, we've kind of forgotten it because we've been <laughs> following some other voice. So that's one strand. The other strand is, of course, having recognised this, that what makes us happy is having the opportunity and the skill and the time to do the simple stuff well is where we should be structuring our society and our economy. And my shorthand for this is valuing food. And the reason I, I always, everything comes back to food for me, as you've probably clocked by now. But I mean, you know, to expect food to be cheap, you know, this thing, as I said, which is life itself, to expect it to be cheap is insane. If we value food, I'm actually talking about putting the true cost of food back in food. Now, I do realise that as things currently stand, that means about a fifth of the people in the UK will immediately go into food poverty. But if your goal is to create a society in which everybody eats well, then you say, well, if, if good food costs this, because this is food that's being created without slavery, without you know cruelty to animals, without despoiling landscapes, whatever it is, 
then we have to structure society so that everyone can afford this food. And therefore, we need whatever it is. I mean, universal credit. I'm not an economist, but you know, universal credit or certainly a, a different system of taxation and sharing that allows people to actually thrive, everyone in society to thrive. And of course, you can also then provide people with the means of growing their own food, if should they so want. I'm not a kind of food-growing fascist. I don't think everyone should be forced to grow vegetables. But actually, lots and lots of people do want to. You know, I mean, there's huge waiting lists, as you probably know, in, in allotments up and down the country. There's vast numbers of people who want to farm. Because when you do something that other people value, and there's nothing more valuable than producing food, and you're allowed to do it well in a way that you want. I mean, some of the farmers I know who are able to farm in that way are some of the most, the happiest, most grounded, most sort of fully rounded humans I know. So, so those are the two strands, actually understanding what really makes us happy, and then aiming to create a society in which we can all achieve this because it's very, very doable. This is the other thing. Because the things that make us happy are simple and they're about just satisfying everyday need. We can do this. I mean, that, that's I, what I find very exciting. Yeah, that's exceptional. I think the idea that the satisfaction or, or that engagement is right here now simply in something you need to do, say, conventionally three times a day, that you might get hungry and have meals, but it may be you know drinking through the day and and having that opportunity when so many people go looking for the I guess popular idea about becoming a superstar, you know, some kind of success as it were, when without exception that every person that's got to that level has then come back and said what I was looking for wasn't there. We exactly. can all we can all sort of <laughs> sit around the fire and exchange stories of being incredibly hot on a hot day. And looking around thinking there's no drink, then suddenly, you know, or that, you know, that ice cream van that turns up just the right time. <laughs> and, and you sit there and you Absolutely. go, oh my God, yeah, this is great. And that kind of simplistic lifestyle is, is built upon the illusion that by surrounding ourselves with more material objects, we're going to find something better. When in fact, actually, those experiences you're talking about are internal experiences. You know, the, exactly. the experience of life is, is internal. It isn't something to be derived from another object, but actually from a deep relationship where it becomes you, you know, like what you drink becomes you. And, and in order to include others truly, it, it's not about becoming better than them <laughs> or, or no, we've no, got a no. better relationship now because we've established I'm superior to you. It's like, it doesn't, that's not it. Exactly. And I mean, what's really interesting about that as well is that just because what you're doing is simple, it doesn't mean that your life is simple. You know, I can be drinking a glass of water and I can be reading phenomenology at the same yeah. time. It, it doesn't limit you. It just means that you're going to the source. You're going to the source of joy and the source of meaning rather than running away from it. Now, I mean, earlier on, you mentioned oh, well, soil, of course, is the place where we all end up. And I think it's really interesting if you try to analyse, you know, why do we run away from this? Why do we run away from reality? I mean, I was listening to a programme last night about the metaverse, you know, and apparently two thirds of us are going to be spending all our time talking to aliens in kind of surround sound <laughs> headphones. I don't think that's going to be me, by the way. But, you know, the idea, why? Why would you want to do that when we live in this absolutely extraordinary, remarkable world? And I think that's another thing, by the way, that happened in lockdown. You know, people, 
who could only go out for an hour a day. Do you remember those times when we could only go out for an hour a day? I mean, they were all partying in Downing Street. But anyway, the rest of us were only going out for an hour a day. And, you know, looking for the first time in their lives at the same, shall we say, cherry tree in their local park. And, and therefore actually being there when the buds opened for the first time. And people were just having these kind of epiphanies right, left and centre. You know, and we could be doing that all the time. You know, if we structured our lives differently, you know, if you can get that much pleasure out of seeing a cherry blossom burst into bloom for the first time in spring, you've solved the problem of life, my friend. You know, that's it. And if you could work, I mean, be a gardener, be a farmer, be a chef, be a doctor, be a bus driver, be anything, be a rugby player, you know, but be something that you do to the utmost of your ability and, and that other people value. And then everything comes back, as I said earlier, to this primary, primary experience. You're doing it. You're scoring that goal. You're building that house. You're planting that tree. You're cooking that meal. And that's where all the satisfaction comes. That's how you can show love. That's how you can develop skill. And then it's all, oh, I'm knackered. I'm going to go to bed. I don't have time to go on the metaverse and talk to Mark Zuckerberg about, you know... (laughs) So it's yeah. all kind of displacement activity. And another philosopher, I mean, actually, I'm going to give Epicurus another another kind of accolade he doesn't normally get. I'm going to call him a Stoic. Because, I mean, his other great revelation, I thought, and it is a Stoic revelation as well, is that life is finite. You know, you're only here for a certain length of time. And it's this whole thing, again, about being in the moment, is realising that this moment is precious because it's never going to come back again. You know, and actually live every day as if it were your last And it's not the length of life that matters, but the quality of life, you know, so that's accepting that you're mortal. And and, and that to me just seems another piece of blindingly obvious kind of good sense that once you're over it, you can enjoy life for what it is, because it's just so present and wonderful. I mean, I find this fact, by the way, that, you know, all the kind of, you know, Elon Musk's and guys shooting themselves off into space are now investing in sort of prolonging human life to the age of 150 and stuff. I just find it absolutely absolutely insane. Why on earth would you want to live to 150 when all your friends are dead, <laughs> kind of who presumably haven't lived to 150? And not, you know, so to be at home, to be in a moment is, is, is what's beautiful about life. It's not just being in a, in a beautiful place, it's being in a beautiful time that's your time. Yeah, I think you mentioned about food having its, its actual cost involved and then making the most of a moment and be it the when you know that something has is is almost like a, a special thing because that's what we have you know when you spend a lot of money on something it becomes a special thing you you do tend to sort of engage in it whether that's because you've spent a lot of money and you know that but that tends to represent the fact you know it's a one-off much the same as this moment is a one-off so I'm going to treat it fully and it reminds me of yeah I come back to analogy in my sporting days is you could be so average on a rugby field for 75 minutes out of the 80 and suddenly you find yourself 15 points down with five minutes to go and your team just goes we've got to make the most of this everything counts and and suddenly you go off and everyone's looking thinking why weren't we doing this the whole way through the game (laughs) why do we have the same urgency about and, and the the engagement and the feel and the team spirit why did we drift and I think it's the same as that that same idea that lockdown may be brought in, you get a short amount of time outside. So when you're outside, you're breathing it in. But because we, we go through that space of I've done this before 
and I've got my assumption of what it's going to be like. I know how good it can be. I know yeah, roughly what it's going to be. So I'll switch most of myself off and I'll have maybe, unless something absolutely crazy happens, I'm probably going to automatically just cruise through this the second time. And the third time it's going to be even more. And I think that's kind of what maybe some of the podcast is about. Those ideas about who we are when you're young and you haven't yet formed them, everything is like that last five minutes of the game. You, you know, you're playing, <laughs> even though you've got two hours yes, before yeah. bed, you're playing two hours before bed the same way you are one minute before bed. You don't cruise the first hour and a half and then go, oh, I've got to go to bed soon. I better really start playing. And I, and I think, but later, then the cycle kicks in. I think what we're talking about here for me is, you know, living in the now is about realising that you are also a one-off. Who you are is a one-off in this moment that's a one-off. And that's all you get. But when we we consider ourselves to be part of this kind of, this collection of of ideas and, and like you said, things you read and the advertising and the messaging and what have you, you, you kind of find yourself again waiting for that deathbed moment, whatever it be, and going, oh, well, if only yeah. I'd done this. It's kind of like, but you've got it now. Whatever you have then, you've got now. Exactly. I don't know whether you know that amazing Dennis Potter. I mean, I put it in my book. I was just so moved by it. But that amazing Dennis Potter quote, I, I, I can't talk about it without crying, by the way. So it's a bit dangerous right. to go into this territory. <laughs> you know, but when he knew he was dying and he looked at, the, I think it was an apple tree actually out of his window and just said that was the, the, the blossomest blossom and the, you know, the most beautiful white blossom I'd ever seen. And it was just so beautiful because he, and of course he captures it brilliantly because he's a writer. And I yeah. managed, I've just gone slightly twinkly eyed, but not badly. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, you know, and absolutely, as you say, I mean, you know, sort of that unpronounceable guy, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi or whatever it's called, but, you know, he wrote that book, Flow, you know, and the, this fact of flowing. I mean, I think this is really interesting. I mean, one of the things I... I've read about you, actually, and that fascinated me is that you used to practice for hours and hours and hours and hours for that one moment. And I do that, by the way, as well. I I love practicing stuff. (laughs) And I think what's interesting about that, and it's interesting if we take the word practice, but I mean, it comes from the Greek praxis, you know, practicing is being. It's a way of, of entering a zone where you do something again and again until it becomes part of you. And, you know, I mean, I don't chop up an onion, you know, when I'm about to make a curry on a Thursday night and think, oh, I'm not going to chop this onion up again. I've chopped up onions before. Of course, I've I've chopped up thousands of onions in my life and cried when I'm doing it as well. But that's part of the beauty. I don't believe in these tearless onions, by the way. I don't think they're going to taste (laughs) anything. But anyway, moving on. But that is the beautiful thing. Do you know what? Cutting up an onion for me has become meditative. Because when I go and start cutting it up, I've done it so many times before now that my brain just goes into this amazing space. It's it's the space, as I say, of flow, where you're basically, time vanishes. It's no longer there. And you're just so in the moment. And that is a beautiful place. Now, you can't be there all the time. But if you cut onions up every every day of your life, the practice itself becomes that beautiful moment. You know, it doesn't Absolutely. have to be the... That day I scored the winning goal, all the other stuff matters too, because that's you living a, a real life in, in a practical way and you know existing in the world of possibility and becoming, as I say, one with the world in a way, because that's what you know acquiring skill does. It allows you to engage in the world, in a sense. And one of the most evil things about capitalism, I think, is that it destroys time. 
and time is what we yearn for. And that kind of practice brings us back into time, you know, which is, as I say, again, close to meditation, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing where you actually, the world stops revolving for a moment and you can just be. 100% what you said about the practice in that it begins as a quest to learn something and then it switches over when it transcends thought and becomes a relationship with you and the thing becomes a relationship of feel and a connected mm. understanding through almost you include it as part of you so you become incredibly responsive to the feel part of it and that's the meditative part i i think the the great thing is is that i still do so much of that now when i don't mm. have that big moment to prepare for because i realized that even when that moment went well if you said oh you could live the rest of your life now you could have it now and it'll never change within five minutes you'd be crying for the opportunity to go out there and do some more practice not because exactly. you say look i'll have the practice without <laughs> the big moment don't give yeah. me the big moment without the practice because there's nothing at the end of it the joy and this is what you mentioned about the gut the growing the garden is that even when you eat that meal you don't say right no more meals for me you realize the beauty was in the preparation and of course the eating but but the eating is part of the next preparation there is no stop line and I think Absolutely. maybe too much of what we're doing now thinks that there's black and white lines and we can just take things out of the environment and put them somewhere else without mm. that complete interconnectedness, like a tree being a tree that connects to every other part of the entire universe. You can't stop and say, yeah. that's the tree and that's not the tree. We're doing that with everything and wondering why we're losing its beauty. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I, beautifully put and, you know, basically I think, and you mentioned it earlier on as well, this weird sort of goal-orientated sort of idea of a good life where these are all the hoops you're meant to jump through and, you know, do it, do it, do it, and why haven't you done it? And also the idea of a life hack, by the way, which I also find just utterly hideous. You know, the sort of, yeah. oh, you don't have to do all that, but don't bother with all that. Here's a machine and you can just write a symphony in half an hour. You don't actually have to learn music. Or, you know, what's the point? <laughs> What even is that? You know, and I, yeah. I think what you said is so beautiful, you know, that the meal is the preparation. And of course, the preparation is the growing and the growing is the land and the land is the, the world and the, and the seasons and the, you know, it, it absolutely right. And this weird thing, as I say, of the, the, the incredible sense of, of just serene, grounded pleasure and joy that I get when I feed somebody's food, not only that I've cooked myself, but I've grown from seed, you know, and protected against hail. And, you know, it's just, yeah. I don't think there are words to describe it because it's profound. And to, to design, as you say, a society and a way of life and even an idea of a good life that excludes those experiences, that says, oh, you're too busy to cook, you know, just buy a whole load of pre-cut carrots and just chuck them in. And, but you won't get any satisfaction out of it. So what's the point? You know, going back to Epicurus again, to get the maximum pleasure out of necessity is the secret of a good life. You know, and, and to me, that just getting pleasure out of getting slightly better at something every day. I mean, it's something beautiful. I imagine. I mean, I used to be a tennis player, you know, hitting the tennis ball. You know, how many yeah. thousands of times did I do that? But, you know, the, the one beautiful, perfect stroke only exists because of the, the 10,000 slightly dodgy oops off the yes. frame ones. But it all matters. It all, it all, it's all part of life. It, it's all got to be there. And how, how little does it matter whether there were 
10,000 people watching that perfect stroke. It doesn't matter. Well, to me, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's that, that's a really interesting thing. I think we need to feel seen. I mean, that's really important. And I think, you know, I mean, this has been a, a lovely conversation because I, I feel we're very much thinking along similar lines. So I felt very heard when I speak, which is lovely. But I mean, I think we do need to feel seen. But it doesn't have to be 10,000 people, no. One other person's fine. You know, and sometimes it can be nobody because you know yourself, you know, I mean, you look at yourself and you sort of, honestly, even if you just clean a window (laughs) and just look through it and think, wow, now I can see that's beautiful and sparkly and I did a good thing. You know, that's all these tiny things. They build up to a life of meaning and of pleasure. And yeah, I I think recognising when other people do good stuff too is really important. You mentioned about the the cooking side of it as well. I guess many of my memories and also family memories would be around someone's cooking food and you sat mm. there having a chat whilst they're doing it. And, I love and that. And then maybe you help out a Did your mum cook? Yeah, my mum cooked and, and my brother cooked when, when we used to live together as well. I mean, I cooked a bit, which was, for some reason nobody ever really wanted me to cook after I'd cooked first time. Aww. Yeah, I know, I think it was it was always a ploy. It's never right. too late, Johnny. <laughs> exactly. No, I do more of it now. I do. Yeah. But, it, but it, yeah, there's a, there's a huge social element built around food as well. To be around food and the the sensory aspects of it. And, you know, it really is a, a, an inclusive opportunity. Mm, I love that. I mean, that's what brings us together. And I mean, you look at these cultures, you know, I mean, everywhere from sort of Eastern Mediterranean, you know, right through to Asia, where they haven't lost their, basically their traditional cooking cultures. And everything revolves around food and yeah. families and just getting people over. And it's just all about, as you say, being together together. Those sort of wonderful aromas evolving. And we evolved as hunter-gatherers around the fire. You know, that is how we learn to be social beings. And the, the shared problem of how to eat is really how we learn to sort of work together and cooperate and divvying up the day's food around the fire and telling stories and stuff. That is literally how we became social creatures. So we feel most at home, I think, and most just happily in our place when we're with people we love, with cooking going on. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's almost the cooking is better than the eating. It's just that sense of anticipation and everyone maybe sort of piling in and, okay, I'll peel the potatoes and all the rest of it. I I just, I love it. It's my idea of heaven. You know, I'm never happier than in a situation like that. I I think there's so much possibility in food and the planet and how it reminds us of, you know, how effortlessly it goes about its business. When we create the right conditions, it just effortlessly surprises us. And you've mentioned it quite a few times, the good life. And I know you've alluded to this quite a few times already, but what would, through the lens of food, what's a life well lived from a human's perspective? Mm. Through food, I mean, I think we're discovering more and more, I mean, as if it was sort of a mystery that, you know, your childhood really, really matters. So obviously a good life begins with being fed well by your parents and being loved. And we all need that. And, you know, again, I don't think as a society we, we spend nearly enough time thinking about how we can support people to be good parents because, you know, it all begins there. And you and I were lucky enough to be well-fed and well-loved. So we started off life very, very happily in our little garden growing away. And I think, you know, all of us, as I said earlier... We've all got incredible capacity and sometimes it just feels like luck whether you really discover what you want to do in life and whether you're given the opportunity to do it. So, I mean, you and I are both incredibly fortunate in that we discovered that. So I think for me, 
I mean, these things, as you say, they all join join up in the end. If if people are given a good start in life and they're given a sort of a wonderful education which allows them to taste lots of different things and find out what it is they really want to do, and then they're given the opportunity to pursue that, then you're going to create happy people. And if you create happy people, everything else follows from that because then happy people don't lean on other people because they're too busy just getting on with their own lives, you know. So it it becomes a win-win. I mean, I think if you understand food and you get food, then, you know, you get life. And these people are givers and they're grounded and they're just full of love and they're full of capacity and they're realists. They roll their sleeves up, you know, and they get on with it and they work in teams and they're just, they're just beautiful on every level. And food is clearly not the only discipline to be in, in order to lead a good life. But I think, you know, finding what you love, doing it to the best of your capacity, doing it without ego, because of course, this is the other thing. When you find that thing that you love, ego goes out of the window. It's no longer part of the of the story because you don't need it anymore because you're actually, you've become yourself. And then you can just show love to other people and you can support other people and you can teach. And you just, you know, you, happy people, when they walk into the room, they light the room up, don't they? Because they, they're not competing with you. They're not trying to be clever. They're just being themselves. That is to be happy, is to be yourself. So I think food just offers an amazing opportunity. And even if you're not a professional, just loving food, enjoying it, because you've got to eat three times a day. So, you know, when you choose what to eat, just ask yourself, did this come from a landscape that's being looked after, a living landscape? Were the people who produced this food, were they paid enough? If animals were involved, did they lead a good life? Did they have a good death? And was it part of preserving the natural world and allowing, as you said, the bees to keep flying and the elephants to keep munching? If you can say yes to all of those questions and become a conscious eater, then you are making the world a better place through the way you eat. And we can all do that. So that's quite a nice thought as well. I sort of heard it um, elsewhere. Someone was talking about this journey we're speaking about, going from compulsive to conscious. And what does being conscious really look like, fully conscious? And And the answer was, well, joyful. That's what consciousness is. Because when you're joyful, you're fully just naturally aware of everything. And it's it's not possible from that joyful state to inspire thoughts against others. I know I've heard stories about experiments around water and, and treating water and, yeah, with enormous love and then other people treating it by sort of like being more vicious and then looking at the way the water develops and just showing that we have this ability through our energy to really alter the the, the path and the growth and the development of whatever we're interacting with. And I think thinking about going about your day in a joyful way, I wonder in terms of, like you said, when people in these amazing food industries have that joyfulness about what they're doing, everyone's going to benefit that and the importance of that and and understanding the joy that's in the the planet already without us having to try and make it joyful. Everything around us is is doing a fine job. It's it's us that needs to look after ourselves, but it's, it's, been absolutely fascinating you know even starting with the fact you mentioned about i love the fact you mentioned about how we are what we eat it's such a strong way it's it's something that seems to go missing for me i with the rugby environment everything was about fitness and performance and so all the foods that start to come in especially in the changing room at half time they're all kind of laboratory produced foil packeted <laughs> kind of things my got, goodness the names uh. you've got z and x and and plus and extra and <laughs> And then you say you go out in the field and then you're joyful 
and you just feel at home. You exactly. feel so at one with everything. And yet with fear, the difference between fitness and health, I guess, health is just so powerful, you know, like your being versus your doing. But it, it's such a, a major topic. It's it is. And as I say, I love food. I mean, not only because I just enjoy food and, you know, I get very excited when I get hungry because I think, oh, good, <laughs> you're not going to have the pleasure of eating all over again. Oh, I'm like a goldfish in that way. I never cease to be thrilled by the idea of eating. But, you know, on the other hand, as you say, it just reminds us that just to sort of be alive in itself is a miracle. And, you know, sometimes you have just have those tiny little moments when you bite into a delicious peach on a hot day or something. And you just it's just like the whole world could stop right then, you know, because it's yeah. just you're at one with everything. And we just need to build a society that is based around that. Because, as you say, humans like plants, they want to grow and they want to flourish. And we just have to recognise that capacity exists in everybody and just concentrate on providing it. And then we can all become radiators of joy and <laughs> walk off into the sunset together. I think food really does have that power. I really believe it does. That's so cool. So cool. Uh, well, Carolyn, I know you've got your book out and it's a few years now, I think, but Cytopia, which I'm yeah. sure covers so much of this, and, and that's does. going well for you? It's going really well, thank you. Yeah, it actually came out literally the week the pandemic was declared, <laughs> which oh. felt like terrible, <laughs> terrible timing at the time. Right. But actually, it turned out to be brilliant, because I, I do write about a lot of these issues. I hope the message continues to spread as far and as wide as possible, because it's, it's an inspiring one. It's also, I'm being reminded on this chat with you, just the, the simple pleasures full engagement in those and they're accessible right here right now uh, and Absolutely. to be reminded of that is 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 a beautiful thing it, it just lets a big breath of big sigh of relief and just the you know, release <laughs> of that tension that there's nowhere to go nothing to do you've just be here and just make the most of this moment so what an amazing pleasure and thanks so much for joining us and and i would love to continue to you know keep track on your Absolutely. path and see where you go and catch up catch up soon Thank you so much. Well, it's been a fantastic pleasure for me as well. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. And just like that, we're at the end of another episode of I Am. I'm so, so grateful to all of you for listening in. I'm enormously keen that this be a two-way conversation. So if you've got any thoughts, questions, ideas, anything that's been inspired by these conversations, anything you just want to get off your chest and get out there, then please send them across in the reviews or just get in touch on social media. I absolutely love holding these types of discussions. I do believe there is no more powerful an opportunity in life than to look at what we can make of our time here on Earth, individually and collectively. There's so much scope and depth in these conversations and all the learnings and lessons I do feel are limitless. If you haven't already and you want to know a little bit more about why I'm holding this space and talking to these guests, then do head over to the Tuesday episodes. There I'll explain my journey and my history with these people. I'll also use this time to answer any of your questions, so don't hesitate to get in touch, and I'd love it if you'd rate, review, follow, and subscribe to the show. Until next week, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to I Am with me, Johnny Wilkinson. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith, and our editor is Kit Melson. <laughs>